0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash slash film. With everything you have on your plate,
1: earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University,
0: we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support
1: you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Monday, January 21st, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing what we've been up to at the water cooler, the Slash Home editor in chief, Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home managing editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's happening? And writers, White Tran Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista.
2: How's it going? I'm trying a new thing. <laughs> I, th- I think you did that last week, right? I, th- I said something. I'm going to try a new one every episode to see which one sticks.
3: I think so people... That's going to run out quickly
2: nope
4: <laughs> it's
3: gonna be funny every time i'll hear chris say howdy next in that, in that howdy
4: duty thick,
3: doody. thick yeah. new england accent of his or whatever yeah east coast accent of yours saying howdy what what
1: well, is the yeah. accent it's not new england i am from
2: philadelphia i guess it's the, the
1: philly, accent. philly accent um you know, before we get started, we should say that this is an exciting week for Slash Film. We have uh, three of our writers are getting ready to head out to Park City, Utah for Sundance. And that includes uh, Chris, Brad, and Ben.
2: Uh, are you guys ready? No. <laughs> I have never felt more unready for something in my life, so that'll be fun. I mean, I'm in
5: Utah already, so I'm kind of ready. <laughs> You got you got one foot in
0: already, Brad. Yeah,
1: yeah. We'll be doing an episode later this week before you guys actually get on the plane, or before Chris and Ben get on the plane, uh, <laughs> previewing uh, the films of this year's Sundance, and hopefully we'll get you guys on from Park City to tell us uh, what you think of you know the movies, and we'll be after the festival be doing you know our typical you know best of the fest episode as well. So uh, you'll get all that info on like you know the films that y- you should have on your radar that you probably don't know about uh in this coming week. But uh before then, let's talk about what we've been doing this week prior. Uh let's start out with what we've been doing. Uh it's it's been rainy here in Los Angeles. So I haven't been doing a lot. Like it's been like last week it was pouring like almost every single day, uh which in LA means that uh people don't forget how to drive and it's uh you know you know, an hour to get anywhere. Um, this weekend I took an improv comedy class, which, uh, to the surprise of Brad, he was surprised to hear I was doing that. Um, I'm not interested in being an actor or a comedian, or I don't really want to get into improv. My, my, my curiosity for taking this class was purely in the fact that I'm, you know, uh, trying to up my, my game as a magician, and a lot of magicians script their magic in a way that if the audience uh, interacts in any way that is not planned, it kind of throws you off your script, and it makes you look like an idiot, um, and I feel like the best magicians are the ones that are actually able to you know, interact and uh, make it a conversation. Rather than a performance. And, um, and also, in the best way as possible, like Brad does. I know, Brad, you, you have some improv uh, comedy background. Um, like, are able to take something that happens uh, and, you know, come back to it in a funny way later on. So I was thinking that taking the improv co- comedy class would give me some techniques in how to better do this. Um, I was wrong. I was, that's wrong. Uh, I it was a failure? Yeah, No, it wasn't a failure. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun, and I was doing it with a couple other magician friends of mine, so it was great to be doing it with people I knew I, I uh, and not making an ass out of myself in front of strangers. Um, and the games were a lot of fun. Uh, I was just hoping that – I think what I was hoping for was that there would be more techniques that would – trying to think of a way to say this i want to say shortcuts but like you know um like the whole uh, yes and like i i thought there would be more like kind of like oh here's some tips to how to you know get things you know in a groove more like you know here's how you can think about callbacks better and here's how whatever and it's really you know (laughs) just like listen better like yeah i know that but um there were some things i think i did learn um i did learn a lot about uh posture and how how that can completely change a performance it, it, this sounds obvious but um i don't know i learned, learned a bunch of stuff there was actually this interesting game that i think it was called last letter first letter have you ever done this brad
5: i i mean i don't think so, but describe it. Maybe I have just under a different name.
1: You would just have a conversation with someone else in the group and they would have to start their sentence with the with a word starting with the last letter of the word you used in your sentence. Oh, okay. So what that would do would cause you not to be able to plan whatsoever for the next line. You would have to be completely in the moment because you know, if I... Brad, if I asked you what you had for breakfast, you would have to answer with something starting with T. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that would be t- a total changer. I don't know. Anyways, uh, I'm going too long on this. It, w- it was a lot of fun. I might take another class just for the fun of it. But... I, I mean, if anything, you should
5: simply because this isn't something that you're going to learn in a day. Like, it's something oh. that you need to practice and, like, keep doing and, like, get more comfortable with, with that that aspect of it.
1: Yeah. I, I just feel like – um. I don't know. I I feel like I was hoping for something that would be more. I could uh, see the connection of how it could be implemented in a lot of the the things in improv. I don't I don't think are actually things you can actually implement into a magic performance. Like if someone asks you, you know, you know, you're probably, you have a deck of cards there, and they're like, "Are those cards from India?" I mean, I guess I could yes, and that and whatever, and that that could be funny, but I I don't feel like that's the that's easily implementable.
5: I, really, I think what it's more for you, yeah, what this, the, for you, what this should be is more of an exercise of like just kind of like loosening your mind and not being so, I don't know, f- firm and um what's the word I'm looking for? I, don't know, I, I guess stiff on stage and like being a little more relaxed and like, yeah, just like, you know, being able to tap into just like a, an open thinking process where you can respond with something that isn't necessarily immediately related to what you were doing and still keep your flow going with your tricks and stuff. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I did take away from this, and, like, the whole uh, second circle mentality. Um, I I don't know. I, I, we'll see if I'll, I'll do it again. I it, it was a lot of fun, and I did go to the Magic Castle a couple times this week. I um, As you know, I've been trying to put together this for the last year, a magic act, and I, I feel like I've been doing more talking about it and trying to uh i want it to be perfect guys i want um you know i see a lot of act magic acts at the magic castle and this is no no uh you know i don't i'm not putting down anybody um uh, but it's a lot of things like you know it's just a trick followed by a trick followed by a trick and i really want this to have a structure and have a story and i think that's why i'm like you know i come from the world of you know our, uh, our world of writing and movies and TV. And I think I, I'm, I'm just putting too much thought into this. And I talked to some magicians at the Magic Castle this past week. I had to just, like, sit down with them. And they basically just told me that I'm grinding my gears too much and I, I should just get down there and what they call the basement, which is the cellar at the Magic Castle, where they have impromptu uh, rooms where you can perform for audiences. They just think I should just do it. Just like... Get a bunch of uh, tricks together, do it, and just start getting experience because I'm going to learn more from that than, um, you know, uh, <laughs> spending yeah, all this time.
5: Yeah, because when you do it, you'll you'll see what works and what doesn't in front of a crowd and see, like, what needs to be reworked and that kind of thing. Because that's, that's something that you, that, you know, comedians do all the time is they're trying new material, seeing what works, you know, tightening up jokes and that kind of thing. And I'm sure you have to do the same thing with, you know, magic stuff.
1: Yeah, I I can see how you could get so stuck in develop. I mean, I have gotten so stuck in development with this, um, so I I think I'm just going to do that. So this week I'm going to put together an act and just go down there and throw myself to the wolves and and do it. Um, I, I mean, I can totally do that. I I just I want to be proud of my act, and I feel like just putting stuff together, I won't be proud of it. But I I think I will benefit more, like you said, from just getting the work on it and getting experience. Um, Brad, uh, you were in Utah. What What are you doing there?
5: Uh, so I came out here a little bit early before Sundance because my girlfriend's sister is was getting married, and the wedding happened to be the weekend before Sundance started. So I came out here. Um, a lot of her, I said before, um, my girlfriend is from Zimbabwe, but she's been living in Utah for ten years, and she has uh, other family here—several sisters, and aunts, and uncles, and cousins. But some of the family who still lives in Zimbabwe obviously came in for the wedding, so I'm meeting her her parents and and other relatives who don't live here, uh, and and all that sort of thing. So it's been a big, busy affair, which also included all of these this errands pretty much since the day I got here, running errands nonstop, uh, setting up for the wedding, setting up for the reception. Um, and this was this was kind of a new experience as far as wedding for me because um, my my girlfriend and most of her family are Mormon. And so, when it comes to Mormon weddings, when uh, if you get married in the temple, not everybody is necessarily allowed in the temple. So, for the wedding part of it, you're actually waiting outside of the temple for them to come out, and then you like take the pictures and that, and that kind of thing. And then, uh, after that, we had just you know a regular reception, but all the setup for that took a few hours, all the setting up of flowers and dishes and decorations and all that stuff. So, it was... A long, exhausting day, but it was really, really fun. The reception was a blast. Uh, you know, meeting her family was really cool, and yeah, it's it's just been it's been a busy, exhausting uh, week. But thankfully, I, th- I feel pretty recovered from uh, the the weekend now, and now just looking forward to getting exhausted again for uh, Sundance. And p- uh, part of my experience during the wedding too was something that I wasn't expecting, but my girlfriend kind of convinced me and poked and prodded me to do was I got a pedicure for the first time. Which, yeah, uh, you know, the, the the more the more masculine side of me is like it's not really something guys do very often. But you know yeah. what? After I did it, uh, I'm kind of a fan, and it's actually something <laughs> that I it's actually something that I've probably needed for a while. Uh, not to get too like gross or anything like that, but like wait, everyone, wait. pedicure
1: is your feet, right?
5: Yes, yeah, yeah. And so I not to get too gross, but like you know, I've I've had you know dry skin on my my feet before, and and that kind of thing, and sometimes you know, like. Everyone knows, like, there's, like, the, the stones that you can use to scrape it off and stuff like that. Um, and, and I don't necessarily, like, give my feet, you know, TLC where I'm, like, giving, you know, very meticulously clipping my finger uh, nail beds or anything like that. And so this was, like, a nice thing. It was, like, a full thing where, like, they even, like, uh, put lotion on your feet and, like, they did this, like, stone, uh, warm stone-like scrub on my legs and stuff. Uh, and it was really nice. And so I, I feel like every now and then I might take advantage of this and like go get a pedicure because it, it was actually really
1: relaxing and nice. You know, what? one of the magic books I re- read says that I should go, get, you know, I do close up magic and they, they suggest that you should go get a manicure just to f- feel what it feels like to have, you know, that done. And I've, I've resisted that. But Brad, you're I think I mean, even though it was a pedicure, you're kind of talking me into this. <laughs> I have no idea how the how
5: the manicure is like. I would imagine it's the same way because I, I I what I understand they do a similar thing where they like do lotion and like treat your hands and like do like a a massage and a and a rub and stuff like that. So, uh, so I, yeah, it, it could very well be worth it.
1: Have any of the other men on this podcast gotten pedicures or manicures before? No, no. Okay, okay then. <laughs> I've gotten i' a many petty,
4: yeah, I've only yeah. gotten a many P- many petty once actually. I'm not um huge with many petties, but it's really relaxing. I've done massages a lot, but they um yeah with a pedicure and a manicure, like they do the massages sometimes like oils or lotions, and it's really nice and it feels very refreshing
1: very cool um H-C, what what have you been up to this week?
4: So I went to the um, preview event for the Alita Battle Angel Passport to Iron City experience. So this is uh, an immersive experience that's being held in New York, L.A., and Austin. And uh, it's sort of um, kind of like part escape room, part sort of like theme park experience in which you go into these like recreations of settings from the film Alita Battle Angel, um, which is directed by Robert Rodriguez. And uh, you can play like little games and um, other sort of puzzles and challenges to win the most points over other teams. So you're like put into teams with other people and immediately you go in and there's like a bar that's the recreation of the Kansas City Bar yeah the Kansas Bar and um you know there are drinks and stuff there but um that right right off the the bat you have to like go to these tablets and sort of read more info about what is going to happen and then you go into the proper marketplace area and there's like a, a booth in which there's a scrapyard and you have to find like the most um worth were these scraps and get the most points or so you go to a booth where you smell like these these vials and you have to guess the smell so it's those it kind of fun games like that and uh, it was really cool the design is uh, was amazing and um really meticulous and they had actors there who uh really uh d- dedicate themselves to the parts of people in a dystopian future um who are living in like the steampunk version of the world so it was fun yeah
1: this kind of sounds a little bit like the Westworld experience that jacob did last year south by southwest but with a game more gamified
4: mm-hmm. yeah um. yeah it was definitely gamified oh and um it opens uh this week uh los angeles on the 23rd new york on the 26th and then austin on the 29th
1: how can how can people go to this
4: uh, so you have to buy tickets, uh, and they can be purchased at the AlitaExperience.com website.
0: Very cool. Ben, what have you been up to? So uh, last week I went to An Evening with Ludwig Göransson, and Göransson is the uh, film director composer. You might know his work. He did the scores for TV shows like Community and Happy Endings and New Girl. And um, recently he did the scores for Venom and Black Panther. And Black Panther was sort of the focus of this particular event. Uh, There was a it was held at the, uh, what, what is the name of this place? The Annenberg, Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Beverly Hills. So it's like a really nice um, theater venue. And uh, Elvis Mitchell from Film Independent did like a and a with the composer. And um, it was a night that w- it was basically like a, a mixture of uh, behind the scenes, like uh, featurettes from Black Panther and clips from the movie and stuff that were shown on the screen and like live performances that he composed and played on the stage in front of us. And he had a lot of his collaborators who worked on creating the score for Black Panther uh, from Africa. He brought them to this event and they were doing, you know, like uh, drum performances and stuff like that. There was one thing that was in, in particular that really stood out to me. They had uh, what was called a talking drum, which is a, an instrument that I've never heard of. But it's like a specific type of drum where you can manipulate the pitch of the drum sound as you hit it. And it it's sort of like uh, in this African culture, it sort of like uh, creates letters, and they were saying that uh, and and words, and they were saying that the certain type of talking drum uh, noise that they would create with this drum that they did on stage a bunch of times during this thing, they actually used it in the movie, and it was like. If you were to transcribe it into a word, it would be the word T'Challa, which is the, the lead character in Black Panther. And they played this song, this little note, I guess, thousands of times throughout the movie, like when he was on camera and stuff. And so there's like a ton of things like that that I learned about how seriously he went and how deep he went into the research aspect of creating the score for black Panther that just adds all these different layers to the movie that you wouldn't really notice as a, a traditional viewer, but knowing about it, it just sort of enriches the experience even more. Um, Goranson is also famous for working with Childish Gambino on a bunch of his albums. He's been nominated or maybe even won a few, I think he's, he's been nominated for three Grammys over the years, um, but he's produced a ton of Gambino's albums. And, uh, He also produced the song Redbone he wrote co-wrote that song with him and at the very end of the night um, he uh, Elvis Mitchell the host asked Goranson to perform that song for the audience and then they surprised everybody by bringing Childish Gambino out and they performed a new version of Redbone, which is the song that was in get out it was like a huge radio hit a couple years ago Um, and and Ludwig Goran's wife is a violinist, and she sort of did this new string-heavy arrangement for that song. And every, I mean, obviously, as soon as Campino came came out, the crowd like lost their shit. Um, And so, yeah, it was just really cool. They just did that one song, and that was in that was like the. you know, the capper of the evening, but, um, it was very cool. And it was another thing put on by film independent, which uh, I, you know, I've talked about before. They're a great organization. And if you guys are in Los Angeles, I would highly recommend looking into them, uh, FilmIndependent.org. They have like all sorts of events like this going on all throughout the year.
1: And you should look into it because the, the, they often sell out way in advance. So yes, get, get on it. Um, let's move up to what we've been reading. Let's start with Chris because you have a, uh, a, a a few books that you've been reading in
2: preparation for Sundance, correct? Uh, yes, I have two books. I read two full books over the weekend. Um, uh, anyone who's, who's listened to the show several times uh, knows by now probably that I am very afraid of flying. Like, And I'm not talking like a mild uh, nervousness. I'm talking like a debilitating uh, <laughs> terror deep in my bones where I I, <laughs> I just, the thought... Like recently I had to drop my wife off at the airport cause she was flying somewhere and just driving to the airport. I felt like I was going to have a panic attack. That's how bad this is. Right. So obviously I have to get on a plane this week to go to Sundance. So I, you know, I, I, said, you know, you know, I can't keep living like this. I need to start, you know, approaching this head on. So I read two different books. One was called flying without fear. And one was called flying with confidence. Um, the flying with confidence one was written by, uh, this pilot from British Airways and British Airways actually has a course they, they teach for people who are afraid of flying. And so this is like that course in book form. And it really did not help me at all. I was actually getting like heart palpitations reading the book. So that didn't help. And then flying without fear helped a little bit more because it was better written, I guess. And uh, But, it, you know, obviously it did not cure me. So I'm just going to have to, you know. Wait,
1: wait what, what, what kind of strategies does it give you to try to overcome this? I'm, I'm curious.
2: Uh, you know, there's like breathing exercises. There's this one thing which I am going to do where you basically put a rubber band around your hand and you snap it anytime you're like having like, panicky thoughts and that basically snaps you out of them. Um Ooh, I've actually seen people do that on a plane before. Yeah. And uh the other thing it did is it, it, it the books basically give you know Q&As to like every question you might have about, you know, what if the plane does this and it, you know, it's it explains that pretty much everything is normal, even you know the sounds you hear are normal and you just have to learn to, you know, just <laughs> push it away and stop, you know. Panicking over it, but you know, that's 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 easier said than done.
1: Well, hopefully, it is a better experience going to Utah. How how long is the flight for you? It is four hours. Ah, nice and short. Well, you can, uh, you know, put two movies on your iPad.
2: Yes, that's that's my plan, and also to take a bunch of pills <laughs>
1: and we'll see how it goes. Self-medication is always the answer. Yes, yeah. Um, Jacob, while HT has been immersing herself in the Battle Angel experience, you have actually been reading the books.
3: Uh, yeah, I, last week I touched and after I read a little bit of the original manga, and now I blitzed through the first three hardcover collections and ordered a fourth one this morning. Uh, it's incredibly addictive, and the storytelling hasn't necessarily gotten more complex. Uh, it's still very straightforward. Uh, Alita the cyborg gets into pisses somebody off. They have a fight. Uh, Alita wins, and another fight happens. Alita wins. But it, uh, even with the pattern of like that, um, I'm impressed by how the series is unafraid to burn down what happened before. Like every time you think it's, it's entered, you know. A holding pattern. Oh, so it's going to be for a little bit. It kind of destroys everything, wipes it out, and moves on to something else. So even though when it's predictable, even when the characters are maybe are are, you know, are, are simple and the storytelling itself is simple, um, it's always rapidly changing. It, it, it refuses to let you get bored, and um, it's 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 very silly. It's very fun. It is sometimes sexist and racist the way you would imagine you know early nineties Japanese manga to be. Uh, but I'm surprised by how invested I am in these characters, how invested I am in this world, and how much I want to know more and learn more. Um, like I said, it, it's sometimes very silly. It, it's it's the kind of manga where the characters shout their special attacks as they do them. <laughs> you know, it's but um, the art is, is keeps on getting better, like with each volume. And three hardcovers, I believe, are the first six volumes you've read in paperback. By the way, for those of you who read them that way, but um, it actually has me more and more interested in the movie because. I remain. I've gone from being um, hesitant about the movie to being cautiously optimistic because well, the early buzz is, has
1: been quite uh, yeah very positive.
3: Yeah, I'm surprised by that. And like some of the like designs and the characters, like now that I've read the manga, I uh, like look at some of the cyborg designs and realize, oh, this is actually incredibly accurate to how they are drawn. I mean, I don't know if Rodriguez can capture the sense of speed and action that the comic has, the way it's drawn. Like, I've never seen, like, battles, like, robot-driven battles drawn in a way that makes them feel this fast and kinetic before on the page. So I'm very curious to see if, if CGI and putting it on in 3D can, like, really replicate how incredibly intense the action of the manga is. But seeing how, like, how Rodriguez and his team have actually really recreated the look of that world. Uh, we can argue whether or not the effects look good, whether or not the CGI Alita looks good. Um, that's something that's up for debate right now. But the overall basic designs really feel torn out of the page, and they're in a good way. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not gonna go around saying I'm suddenly a super fan of this thing. I, I started reading a week ago, but I'm definitely a fan. I really like it. And if you like, you know, really good action comics, um, the hardcovers I think are normally thirty dollars each, but they're all on Amazon for like nineteen or twenty bucks, and they are they're incredibly fun, and they're only getting better as you go along.
0: Very cool, Ben. What have you been reading? So I, over the past, I think it's probably taken me like maybe two and a half months to read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a very long novel that I just have not devoted the time to, you know, sit down and read. I'm sure I could have read it quicker, but I've had a lot going on, you know, with the holidays and everything. Um, But I finally finished this book. Yeah, it's by Michael Chabon. And um, it is, I mean, okay. so the the premise of the book is it's about these two cousins, uh, one of which is a refugee from Prague I believe who study grows up like studying magic and uh the art of being an escape artist and he okay comes I'm interested to,
1: I'm interested yeah he
0: comes to New York City in 1939 and lives with his cousin who is the son of a like a strong man uh who wandered around like the vaudeville circuit and the two of them create uh, their own superhero comic book and it sort of traces the their careers uh in parallel with the rise of um, superhero comics in America, so it's like it's like historical fiction because occasionally they will bounce off and you know bounce around the city and, and meet with uh, actual real people. Like Stanley makes a cameo at one point, and like um, I'm trying to think who else or Orson Welles shows up briefly. They go to the premiere of Citizen Kane, and that movie influences how they work on their comics. Um, there's a lot of like uh, Jewish mysticism and stuff like weaved in. There's a lot of talk about. Um, like how Batman and Robin and like uh, forgetting the guy's name, I think it's Frederick Wortham, who there was like a big case you guys may have read about, about like the, um, this is an actual thing that happened, how like uh, he testified before Congress and wrote a, a book talking about how Uh, comics were promoting like homosexuality and stuff because of characters like Batman and Robin and you know how like Robin is Batman's ward. And like, there's all this uh, subtext in there about them having a gay relationship and all that stuff there, that uh, real actual thing is weaved into this book in a really interesting way because of the sexuality of one of the main characters. Um, I don't really want to say too much about it just because like, hopefully like Peter, some of you are intrigued by this and I would say it's worth reading. It's just, um, it's very detailed. It's very uh, it's very long. The uh, I loved all of the crossover moments with those, you know, actual artists and, and Hollywood figures. And like the I liked the story as a whole. I think it gets a little too detailed for me at times. Like I I've, I would have been fine if this book cut, you know, like 100 pages out of it or something. But um, I, I know I'm not the only one on this podcast who has read this book. So I want to hear from I, I think, Jacob, you've probably read this, right?
3: Yeah, this book's incredible. I, it's been a while since I've read it, but it, it's if you're interested in comics or American pop culture from the 30s through the 50s, uh, this is a vital tome. It is just uses comics to explore um America during that time period in a way that is fascinating and gripping and you know all the things you want out of a really good book. I know that they've tried to adapt into a movie many times, and I think it's probably impossible. It's too detailed, too rich, and too much happens. It is really worth tracking down a copy. Yeah,
2: I that's was good. I was going to say, it's actually just... funny
1: that uh, Scott Rudin, uh, I think, pitched this to Paramount. They bought the rights after Shaban uh, only had a one-and-a-half-page, like, treatment for this book. So that was, like, in the early 2000s. And I think there was, like, talk of uh, who? Uh, Toby Maguire and Jamie Bell and Natalie Portman uh, being in this film. And then there was, you know, Andrew Garfield, Ryan Gosling. You know, it went through a whole bunch of different uh evolutions and there's even i think in the early 2010s they were talking about making making it a television miniseries instead of a film so i'm wondering i'm wondering if do you think it could happen as that or do you think it's still not even like good like it's still not adaptable even like in an eight or ten episode like hbo series
0: It it covers such a long period of history that I was shocked that there was even talk that they could adapt it in any form at all because it's – I mean, it's just such a long – period that it would seem like you would have to do some digital de-aging or like some old age makeup or something because they, the characters go through so much over the course of the story. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe like a, an HBO show or something like that. I could see that like a limited series. What, uh, Jacob, if you, if this property were to be adapted in some form, what would you want to see it take?
3: Oh man, a mini series to HBO is probably the best bet because I feel like that as a network, they have their act together when it comes to miniseries. They like nobody does them better. Uh, I think, but I think it's gonna be a case where you got a True Detective season one. It you got to get one guy to write all the episodes, you get one person to direct all of it. I feel like it's gonna be ten hours. It's gonna be a singular vision from a singular team. It can't be scattershot. Um Yeah, it, it's it really is way too focused of a source material to try to say like let's get ten different directors to make this a TV show. I, I feel like it's got to be something that connects with a single filmmaker who can bring out all things that feel so personal in the book um can't be a committee thing that's that's and and i think hbo you know they specialize in that they do a lot of miniseries that are by you know a handful of creatives behind the scenes Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i think that if they were to do it that's the best bet
0: yeah and it's more the book is more comics based than magic based peter but i still think there's enough magic stuff in there that you might i know i know but (laughs) i know that like I'm, i'm sure you haven't really read any like A bunch of mainstream, you know, best-selling novels that involve magic and this is one of them. So, um, yeah, I'd recommend checking it out for you in particular.
1: Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been watching. I will first start off with Titan Games because Jacob was talking about this, I think, last week on the water cooler. Is that correct?
3: Uh, That or the week before, probably. Yeah,
1: and uh, this is the show by Dwayne The Rock Johnson that is basically his kind of like American Ninja Warrior style show, but it's for kind of like regular everyday people, I guess. It's kind of, you know, regular – no, okay. Not regular people, but uh, people that are not athletes in their like everyday life, but they are extraordinarily athletic in a way. Is that, that probably fair to say?
3: Yeah, amateur athletes is probably the word you're looking for.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the the thing that's interesting about this show is how every one of the games in, involved here are designed and presented in this very, like, epic and huge way. It, like, it's every single thing is, like, this gigantic spectacle of, like, what you would imagine if, like, the Roman, you know, games existed today. And, um... I know the show spends a lot of time on trying to show these emotional stories from the participants. And uh, I feel like, I don't know. I just feel like that plays a little second fiddle to the enormity of the challenges that that's what I'm really in it for. But I, I, I totally get, you know, reality, uh, you know, sports TV, uh, TV, like people get into those kind of the, the, the human stories at the center there. Um, the, Six or eight challenges designed by The Rock each take, like, you know, take on uh, different strengths. Like, some require upper muscle. Some require leg muscle. And um, some require a combination of both. And I'm actually kind of wondering, like, how they choose. And I'm wondering, Jacob, if they've explained this because I've only seen the first episode. How they choose when, when someone gets picked uh like everybody applied to be on this games and the people that like made it through to actually the shows i wonder how it's chosen which of the games that they actually compete in because not everybody's competing in the same games um and i feel like that would put some people at a disadvantage against others because some of these games are seem to me to be harder than other uh, other uh, games does that make sense
3: yeah it does and it's something that um my wife and I were talking about just the most recent episode because there have been a few cases now where there'll be somebody who has a, a strength-based challenge for their first um, game. And we've all like, you know, smashing concrete with a sledgehammer to make something lighter so you can lift it up uh, over your head kind of kind of challenges. And those are the kind of challenges where like somebody who's an enormous bodybuilder type excels at. But the moment that my bodybuilder moves on to the next round and he's forced to um, do a challenge where he requires agility... Like the guy who's more well-rounded, who's also agile and lighter um, on, on his feet, like, destroys the bodybuilder. So it, it, it definitely something I, I wanted that, too, if it's randomly assigned or if they maybe try to play their strengths at first. But um, definitely the um, overall challenge, like, the the, the like the, every episode ends with, like, you know, this climbing up this mountain of Mount of Olympus. Mount Olympus, yes. Which, which um, makes,
1: like, the aggro crag from Guts look like a <laughs> toy for kindergartners.
3: Yeah, it, it is the Aggro Crag on steroids, possibly literally. Uh, but it it, um, it is very much it, it is challenging both agility and strength. So the so the guys who are pure strength in the first round tend to like really falter um, on, on on against when they and they're asked to like leap over things. So it's a very good question, Peter. I'm wondering that too. But definitely the more well-rounded athletes, the guys who can you know run as well as lift, are the ones who are excelling so far.
1: I like it. I'm going to keep on watching it. The, the, my other complaint about it is I feel like so far when I've seen people on this, like Mount Olympus, it's it's a one versus one kind of competition to the end of Mount Olympus. And I feel like I think it would gain if, if they could make Mount Olympus so that it's four people competing uh, for one winner instead of two people. Because when I've seen it, it seemed like most of the time there's one person clearly in the lead and they never, you know. You know the other person never catches up, and that's just not dramatic for television, but uh, has that that been a problem on on subsequent episodes?
3: It's, it, some of them some of them not because the way it works. For those of you uh, listening at home who haven't watched this is that um there are two men compete in one one challenge and the winner moves on and two men compete again uh, and two different men compete and the the two winners of those two men do Mount Olympus. and then um in the same episode, two women compete and two more women compete and those women go up mount olympus so ultimately you're having um grand finale of two mountain climbs one for the men and one for the women and i'd say maybe about 65 percent of the time so far it's been neck and neck and then 35 percent of the time there's that one guy who can't get over that one thing so it's you know it's it's, it's probably an issue that could be smoothed out in a season two or maybe something that will resolve when they take all the winners back cause the idea is at the end of the season, all the winners will come back and compete against each other. And so my guess is that maybe there'll be some stumbling blocks early on, but when they bring back all the previous winners who've already beaten the mountain and ask them to compete against each other is when it's going to get really good. Yeah.
1: No, I, I, I just, I'm a big fan of the rock and I love the endless positivity that he has and the, I don't know. I, he's just like, uh, he's like, I, I wish he made like, um, uh, what do you call those? Like those, uh, like, uh, Tony Robbins, like, uh, he <laughs> motivational <was> like, videos. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I would want to listen to the rock, give me encouragement, motivational videos. I feel like that would be, I don't know. He's, he's above that though. Right. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some other things. Um, let's talk about the fire festival because, uh, you know, this doesn't happen often. Uh throughout history there's been uh movies that have been in parallel development. We've seen a bug's life and um bugs, no ants and uh, you know, volcano or I mean uh, uh Deep Impact and Armageddon and stuff like that. And it, I mean it happens probably more often with with documentaries because that is based on real life happenings. Uh, so there's two documentaries that were in parallel development about the fire festival and both of the, but it's, it's kind of unusual to have both of them hit within like a week period. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but uh, so in this one was really a showdown of the streaming services. One was on Netflix. One was on Hulu. Uh, for those of you who have been underneath a rock, the fire festival was this um, high-end musical festival that was supposed to be held on a private island in the Bahamas that was once owned by Pablo Escobar, and it was going to be the new Coachella, and it ended up being a disaster of epic proportions. Um, to be honest here, I knew about the Fire Festival. I, I had I'd seen some of the memes online when, you know, everything went wrong and people were making fun of kind of like the rich kids stuck in, you know— basically a parking lot of with tents and stuff like that. But I didn't really know much beyond that because I really didn't feel the interest to read into it. I don't know why. Um, so these two documentaries were very fascinating to me because it really let me in on the whole story. Uh, one of them, uh, the one by um, the one on Hulu, it was called. Uh, what is it called? Fire fraud. Yeah. Yes it that's produced by F. Jerry, the company that helped market the festival yeah no, actually it's uh it's the Netflix one that's produced by uh f. Oh, Jerry sorry, I'm confusing it, yeah, the Netflix <laughs> one is called Fire, actually it has a subtitle of some kind, right? It's Fire it's like the know. greatest party that never happened, or
2: something like yeah, that yeah,
1: that. that one is produced by F. Jerry, the company who helped market the festival and is named in some of the lawsuits against the festival um the Doc. Uh, was um, the one that's called uh, Fire Fraud it paid some money to Billy McFarland, the guy that uh, was in charge of this and uh, I guess scammed people out of their money <laughs> um, He uh, so it, it's unclear how much they paid him I think Billy says that it was a quarter of a million dollars I think the filmmakers have said it's much less than that so both of them kind of have the interesting um, prospect that they are uh, you know, there's
3: yeah. some ethically co- compromised. Yeah,
1: ethically compromised, I think is probably the, the best phrase of it. Um, it is interesting because, uh, uh, the, the, the Netflix one, the one is that is, that is, held, uh, partly, partially produced by F. Jerry, I think tries to paint them in the influencers who are hired for the marketing campaign as people who are also conned by Billy where the other, the Hulu one, I think kind of uh, shows that F Jerry had a lot of insight that things were going south long before they decided to not be a part of that um, festival. Um, the, I think the fire one on Netflix for me is better it looks better it has more footage it um it's directed by Chris Smith who is the filmmaker behind one of my favorite documentaries of all time uh, American movie if you haven't seen that I would highly recommend go checking that out and he also directed uh one of my favorite films of 2017 Jim and Andy um, the other one fire fraud uh, is it's good um but it has these weird I don't know like I feel like it's not as well like the 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 footage is not as well framed the interviews are not as well presented they they have like these uh they read from court transcripts and they use like this text-to-speech program rather than having someone actually read what it says and it just comes off kind of like a disjointed mess but i feel like both have their their own um advantages and i i feel like both of these documentaries are 90 minutes long and i feel like if you need to see both of them to kind of get to essentially get the whole story i feel like if 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 someone could edit these two documentaries into one two-hour documentary i feel like that would be the best of both worlds that's obviously not going to happen uh the the fire documentary on uh, netflix also had like Uh, It was interesting because I think it's the first documentary I saw that, like, had noticeable uh, score from movies. Like, it was using the score from Gone Girl and maybe even some stuff from The Social Network, um, which I guess made it more cinematic. Um, And that one also had some footage, some intimate footage uh, from the NYC access tickets scandal um, that the Hulu doc didn't have. So, I don't know. I'd recommend people see both of them. I know I'm not the only one who watched both these this weekend HT you watched both of them right
4: yes i did admittedly i watched both of them while uh, drinking lots of wine so i don't remember all the details but um i agree with you in that i think that these films are best watched together because they complement each other and um while i think the netflix film fire is um a little more sleek than the other one. It does have that sort of shadow of uh, accountability or unaccountability to it because it's uh, produced by the F Jerry guys. Uh, whereas fire fraud, is more approaches it more as an overall fraud and kind of has a stronger timeline of all the events but doesn't quite get some of the more human interest elements that fire does also it kind of annoyed me that fire fraud said millennials like a million times i'm like okay i get it (laughs) millennials are the worst got it um but um oh you're responsible
1: for this it's your I fault. I know. Apparently, it's
4: my fault. I had no idea who half these influencers are, uh, quote unquote, influencers. So, this is a whole world that was very unfamiliar to me. And um, I remember only hearing about Fire Fraud, or not Fire Fraud, about the Fire Festival when it all went to shit, essentially. And that was a great moment of like shortened food for everyone. But um, this was definitely like a world to which I am not um, a <laughs> i'm not familiar with uh um so i i feel like i'm absolved of this i think in some ways uh but i do want to say before i i finish wrapping up my thing it sounds like a lot of us had a lit weekend
1: (laughs) um i i didn't know anybody in this documentary except for jarul which who i know you know in a the vague i've heard his name before i couldn't even tell you what songs he does um You know, both of these documentaries also try to say something about that—the potential problem of influencers and the FOMO, exclusive Instagram lifestyle of millennials. Mm -hmm. But I don't think either of them kind of nail it. Chris, you saw
2: both of these documentaries as well, right? Uh, Yes, I did. I really have nothing new to add. Everything, everything you you both said pretty much mirrors my uh, my opinion of, of the films. I, I enjoyed watching them. Uh, I do think you should watch both to get the full picture. Uh, I also think everyone involved in both these movies is just are is terrible, and like I'm sad to share a world with them. But that's where we are. Jacob, you only watched the Hulu one,
1: Fire Fraud, right?
3: Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I feel really stupid, but the uh, main reason I didn't watch Netflix one is the Hulu one when it has this big wrap-up of like, here's where everybody is now. It shows the F. Jerry guys and says, they're currently working on their own documentary. And I'm like, oh, that's a Netflix one. F those guys, they're such a monster. It's not going to watch the Netflix one. Uh, so I had that kind of visceral reaction, which is which is <laughs> unfair, considering that apparently you know they're both very different movies, very different intentions. But uh, Fire Fraud does present the F. Jerry guys as being so complicit and and being so... as being villains of this story, in addition to Billy McFarland. I mean, I know people are going to ride fire fraud for paying money to Billy McFarland to um, do interviews, but for me, it ends up being worth it because every single time Billy McFarland is on screen in this movie, he is collecting all of his own rope and hanging himself. And every single time he opens his mouth, he is just revealing himself to be this fraudulent, con artist, criminal idiot. And it frames... Um, the entire thing is being the work of this bro-tastic douchebag. <laughs> it makes you wonder, how did this happen? And I, I have not seen Fire. I, I, you guys can happily chime in and tell me if I'm wrong. But I feel like that's a very, very important part of this and know that Billy McFarland was no tactical genius. He was no elite businessman uh, with, with, a, with a solid plan. He was a dumb kid um, out to form a criminal enterprise and was every step of the way... Bumbling his way upwards before he tumbled off the tower and fell and splattered to a, a business death. And not having that, I feel like it would be a problem. I do think Fire Fraud is occasionally a little too cute in its setup. It is, you know, very, um, it has like a lot of pop culture references, a lot of clips to try to clarify things. Like, someone will mention a TV show, or clip a clip of that TV show to sort of, you know, say, you know, t- sort of like reinforce what they're talking about. I don't think it's always necessary. But I do think that knowing that the Netflix one you know, doesn't have Billy McFarland um, hanging himself and doesn't have the, the um, F. Jerry guys being a vital part of this mess and like knowingly um, making it worse, that makes me hesitant to watch it. But what do you guys think? I mean, you guys said I should watch both, and should I?
4: With Fire, there are some interviews with the, the local island staff um, that, really show like the impact that this festival had on just the 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 Bahamians who put all they're all into this work and um ended up not getting paid for a lot of it. Although there's a weird uh interview with one other like uh F. Jerry person who talks about how the Bahamians put out a hit on him, which definitely seems very wrong and irresponsible. But other than that, (laughs) the uh I think the interviews with the Bahamians are are definitely worth it.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely worth checking out the other documentary because it, it is funny how there's just, like, little details left out by each documentary that I, I don't even think are intentional in that they're trying to... The only thing I think that's intentional here is the F. Jerry uh, produced one on Netflix does kind of, like, just gloss over their involvement in it. Like, it, it they do appear in it, and it's clear that they're bro douchebags, but... Uh, it doesn't really put any blame on them. Aside from that, I would say both documentaries I think are produced in um, a fair way. Like uh, they really are trying to tell the story. But like they, you know, you're not going to get all the facts. And I feel like uh, th- having a different point of view and a different angle—that's th- what's fascinating about this—is seeing the same story from two different angles. Um, and I, I, I do agree with HT. The uh, seeing the hundreds of Uh, people that were involved in working on this thing and never paid. And uh, what, you know, strife this did to to, to that small island is kind of uh, incredible and something worth seeing. And also, um, you know, one thing that kind of hits me coming out of this documentary, and I know this probably doesn't seem obvious to a lot of people, but I'm kind of amazed that... um, what Billy was able to do, it kind of makes me question any of these companies that are getting like VC funding in Silicon Valley, because he was literally just kind of like a used car salesman with a small idea. And he was able to, you know, mobilize tens of millions of dollars with like no actual thing to back it up. And I guess I, I know a lot of people are cynical like that already, but I, 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 really didn't think that investors with millions of dollars would get involved in something like this, if there wasn't something in, you know, if there wasn't a uh, foundation in place, and it really makes me question a lot of things that are, you know, uh, basically going on today in Silicon Valley and stuff like that, because really it, it could just be another Billy. You know, with an idea and there's nothing there and the earning millions of dollars for that idea. Like, it's just, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's scary. It's kind of scary. Um, that's all I watched this week. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because Brad and Ben both dis- did not watch any of these fire documentaries. Is there any reason, uh, Brad, why you have not watched them?
5: Honestly, I just haven't had the time, uh, just because I've been here dealing with uh, wedding stuff and that kind of thing, and I haven't had the, the time to sit down to watch them yet, but I do have both of them in their respective queues, and I will watch them as soon as I get some time.
1: Ben, how about you?
0: Uh, I was kind of curious. And then at a certain point I was like, maybe I just don't need all of this nonsense in my head. And then I saw that both of them were ethically compromised and I was like, well, I know <laughs> now I don't know what to pick and I don't want to watch both of them at the same time. I don't know. Uh, I so I just, I, I opted out of the whole thing. Opted out.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching?
5: So I, as I said, I haven't had really much time. So I, the only things that I've watched, uh, since the last episode were a couple things, on my flight over here to Utah, um, uh, mostly just catch up on on things. I watched uh, Tully, Jason Reitman's movie uh, with Charlize Theron, and uh, I really enjoyed it um, for the most part. It's uh, it has a little bit of a predictable turn in it that I I, I saw coming, but I still thought the uh, Charlize Theron's performance was great. Um, it's a very uh, you know I guess sort of intimate portrayal of just. Uh, what life can be like as a mother and how exhausting it can be to have kids and kind of just tapping into the idea of, like, losing yourself a little bit when you get caught up in just how life goes after you have children, that kind of thing. Um, but I – it's it definitely <laughs> – there are times in it it's, that Charlize Theron's life is so stressful and miserable that it made me <laughs> reconsider the idea of, like, ever wanting to have kids because uh, it is something that I wouldn't mind having one day, like, having a couple kids. But man, there's some real, real tough moments in this movie where I'm just like, ugh, no thanks. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, did, have, have you guys seen Tully yet? What, what what, do you guys think of it, Tully? And, uh,
4: um,
1: no, no spoilers oh. here. I just want to say that.
4: Yeah. Um, I've seen it. I really enjoyed it too for uh, Charlize Theron's performance. And I think while the twist could have been predicted, I thought it was in keeping with the film's sort of overall. Um, Themes and tones, without going into spoilers, but uh, I I thought it was great and uh, something that um, left a left an impact on me when I got out of theater.
5: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's um I, I I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um and and then the other thing I watched so I was I watched Tully and then our flight was ahead of schedule so I only had a limited amount of time so I I literally looked to see what I wanted to watch and what I knew that I could finish in the time that i had left on my flight and the 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 best thing that fit was a documentary called uh the perfect bid the contestant who knew too much and this is a documentary that I, i've seen just like the the poster art cover art for pop up on i think amazon or, or hulu one of the places maybe all of them who knows um and i was interested in it simply because i'm Somebody who, like everybody, grew up watching The Price Is Right when they were homesick from school, and ca- still catches it every now and then. And this documentary is tells the story of this guy who is responsible for a person getting a perfect bid during the showcase showdown of The Price Is Right, literally to the the number, uh, the exact dollar amount. Um, and so this tells the the documentary tells the story of this guy who is a A lifelong fan who has been to the show dozens of times was a contestant. um, Has been was seen on TV, like being one of the people in the crowd yelling bids and like having contestants actually listen to him and win prizes. And it kind of just it's it's meant to be this sort of thing of clearing the air because I never heard about this story when it happened, but apparently it was a big deal when this guy did get the perfect bid during the Showcase Showdown. And there was rumors that maybe there was some kind of insider cheating going on where somebody behind the scenes was giving people inside information um, or that there was a group of uh, fans who had like somehow used price lists to, to help uh, other people win and that kind of thing. And there, there's just a whole interesting story behind it. And so it's it's kind of set up as this thing of clearing the air and explaining what really happened because apparently the contestant who got the perfect bid uh, has ties to the, the the main person who's at the center of this story um, the one thing I will say is that even though I was I was interested in this documentary just because I like the prices right and it's, it's an interesting story but the documentary itself is not very well produced um, it feels very cheap sometimes like the audio from the interviews is isn't that great um, the production value just isn't there but it for, for me it was just hearing the details of this guy's story and how it all unfolded and sort of just the history of everything that uh, was was interesting to me
1: so is this worth checking up because this concept seems fascinating to me. And I, I love uh, the 1994 movie quiz show directed by Robert uh, Redford, I think Um, starring John Turturro. Uh, Like, is this something I, is the quality worth getting through for the content?
5: I mean, if you like the prices, right. And you're interested in those kinds of things. I I say, yes. Like it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting enough that you kind of, you can kind of ignore that, the, the quality Um, and and it's, it's short too. It's, it's barely an hour and 20 minutes. Um, yeah. So, so you, it's, it's a breeze to sit through. Um, and so yeah, if, if, like I said, if if you, if you like those kinds of things and you you know, want to know the behind the scenes story of how this stuff happened, then I I think it's worth, worth checking it out. Even if you're just tossing it on, like while you're
1: doing something else. Do you know where people can watch that outside of being on a plane?
5: Yeah, uh, you can find it on Hulu. I just just confirmed that. So if you're not on a flight, uh, Hulu is where you can
1: watch it. Very cool. Jacob, what have you been watching?
3: Uh, in addition to Fire Fraud, um, I saw an early screening of Gaspar Noé's Climax. And I'm trying to give a way to sum this movie up. And it's very really difficult. Uh, Noé is the director of movies like Irreversible and Enter the Void and Love He's a provocateur. He's very difficult. He makes films that are often hard to watch, uh, very unrelenting, very brutal, very upsetting. And Climax very much follows that path. The basic gist here is that it follows a group of dancers, a large group of dancers to the point where like it's hard to follow all the characters, uh, at least on a first-time viewing, who are gathered in a uh, isolated, abandoned building uh, for rehearsals for some kind of dance project that's never fully explained. And the first half of the movie is... Uh, them rehearsing, them partying, them drinking, them having a good time. Then around halfway through the movie, uh, it is revealed that someone has spiked the sangria they've been drinking with LSD. And things go very, very badly for everyone. And you start plummeting to the lowest possible depths of humanity you can possibly imagine. And I described this on Twitter as uh, Step Up as directed by Satan. And I stand by that description. It is... Uh, deeply upsetting and it starts off you know, with literally this ma- massive amazing unbroken crane shot of this incredible dance number Like it puts most movie dance numbers to shame if movie was a full-fledged musical it would be spectacular and the true uh, Gasper No Way fashion he continues to use these extremely long complicated shots that feel like they, they feel impossible I mean the, once the LSD reveal happens the movie becomes one shot and I'm sure there are cuts hidden there but I can't tell you where at this point And it becomes this one long, disorienting shot, uh, following various characters as they freak out, um, become paranoid, turn on each other, and just, it becomes hell on earth. Uh, The colors of all the rooms become garish, um, violence breaks out, uh, horrible, ugly truths are revealed, and just genuinely bad things start happening, and... Right now, I'm not so sure if I'm stupid or if the movie is just too vague. I'm not sure what the point of, of it all is. Like, I, I can't tell you that I understand what Climax is trying to tell me. Other than, you know, don't put LSD in the sangria. But I will, I'll I'll admit that I was completely gripped by it. From being, from at least when things started going to hell, I was completely gripped by it. It's a little bit slow going on. Um, especially when post-dancing and pre-freak-out uh, is a little... Sometimes a little... A little hard to get through, it's a little, little, not quite dull but I wasn't quite engaged with the characters because I didn't know their names couldn't keep track of who it's who because there's so many people but by the time things have gone south, and by the time Noah is pulling so many tricks out of his back pocket to do horrible things to his characters in these unbroken takes that feel like impossible like there, there are effects in this movie that because it's done in one take with no cuts I don't know how they did it I mean, I don't know how this violence is being staged. I don't know how these these sequences are being put together. I straight up do not comprehend how it's being done. So, from a purely, from a technical point of view, if you want just a mesmerizingly awful experience, like a a movie a, a movie that just puts you into a bad place for a long time and puts it in, and films it in a way that's impossible to understand how it's being done, it's entirely gripping. And then on, on those grounds, I can recommend it. But it's definitely a for adventurous people only. Um, it is, it's something else, man. If you've seen his previous movies, you know he he does really wild things with opening credit scenes. They come when you don't expect them and are presented in, in ways you don't expect. The movie begins where it ends and flashes back, and, and it runs the, the closing credits first after the closing shot of the movie, and then it flashes back. and it's that, it's that kind of movie. It is. It sets out to really unsettle you, upset you, and throw you off. and a24 is releasing it in March and I'm not going to say go out and see <laughs> everyone, I'm not going to say everyone go see Climax but if you are like super adventurous if you're the kind of filmmaker who sorry film fan who admires uh, technique, who admires you know being tested who admires like experiences that are going to leave you scarred but in ways you want to talk about, Climax is really something else and when we do next year's you know list of 50 greatest moments of the year or fifth, uh, it's going to be like five or six moments from Climax right off the top of my head that are just, like, forever burned in my brain. Uh, I'm curious, anybody else catching that a fest? I know I played a lot of fest last year.
1: No, and I, I generally do not like this filmmaker, but I am a fan of single-shot stuff and uh, the craft and... <sighs> Jacob, I hate you because you're making me <laughs> want to see this and I know I'm going to hate it. And... Should I should I just pretend that it doesn't exist?
3: I, I would pretend it doesn't exist, Peter. I I, I don't <laughs> think it's for you, but it's uh, like there's stuff in this movie, man. I don't know how I freaking don't know how they did this movie. I don't know I don't know how this movie was made. Like I I can watch a lot of movies with a lot of unbroken long shots and a lot of chaos happening in long shots. But I straight up there's stuff happening in this movie that is subtle. Like subtle things are not like in your face that like when I think back on it, I go, I don't know how they pulled that off. I don't know how they staged that. And and because of that, it feels real in a way that was upsetting. In a way that most movie violence or movie, you know, disturbing sequences don't hit me the way this one did.
1: (sighs) Regrettably, it sounds like I'm gonna have to see this (laughs) shake (laughs) up.
3: I would recommend seeing in theaters. I can't imagine it playing at home. At home, where you can pause it and look away, and like you know, be surrounded by dogs and cats or family members, it's not gonna play the same. But in a theater where you're held hostage by it. I feel like that's really the only way to see this. Like I would never watch a no-way movie at home. Uh, I've tried watching Enter the Void at home after seeing it in theaters, and it's not the same thing. So if you see this, you know look for it in March. Um, try to track it down. And I'm not saying you can't enjoy it at home, but I'm saying that I can't imagine it being the same at home. Okay, what, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Well, we're running really long. So I'm going to blitz through my last few. Uh, True Detective Season 3. It's good. Uh, it's not as, like, lightning in a bottle amazing as Season 1. And as as a person who's quoted on the box, on the Blu-ray box for season two, uh, as one of the few defenders, it's not as funhouse, crazy, wacky, we're making this shit up as we go, uh, uh, insanity of season two. I'm uh, like I said, I'm one of the very few defenders of that, but it's it's a very compelling mystery. Mahershala Ali is really really good playing the same character in 1980, 1990, and 2015. Like he's playing different ages really well, and I'm drawn in by the mystery. I, I want to know where it goes. He's True Detective is good again, or it's good in a traditional sense again because season two is good for weirdos like me. I watched Practical Magic um, for the first time. My wife's one of my wife's favorite movies. It's really cute. I liked it. I I, I think that it's. As far as rom-coms go, more rom-coms should have uh, magic and murder and uh, ghosts and people being resurrected from the dead. More of that, please. <laughs> I rewatched Halloween for for her first time since Fantastic Fest. My wife's first time watching it. Movie holds up at home; it's great. Uh, my wife thinks that the whole Doctor subplot works, so suck it. Um, Jacob, and, your <laughs> wife
1: is, is right about everything ever
3: <laughs> except for this. <laughs> and finally, I start. Right, annual rewatch of Game of Thrones to prepare for the new season. Every every year, we uh, before the new season of Game of Thrones, we rewatched all the previous episodes. Wait, you're and rewatching
1: you know, the entire series?
3: The entire series. That and, is insane. Uh, yeah, we. I watched four episodes in a row while painting figures. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, later, uh, last night, and Game of Thrones. You know, season one, even on on that much smaller budget, when they're like, when the show is mostly, you know, twenty people talking in rooms, it's still really, really good and as much as i love the big budget show to become there are days where i kind of miss when game of thrones was a show about people whispering in rooms i miss those days slightly but you know it holds up really well still one of my favorite shows of all time and i'm eager to get through the whole thing again
1: very cool um and everybody can watch that on hbo go or hbo what's the other one now i guess yeah mm-hmm. yeah um ben what have you been watching
0: Uh, I watched police story two last week. I talked about the first police story and um, criterion is, is doing 4k restorations of both of these movies. So I had never seen either one and I asked them for screeners. And, and so I got a chance to check this out and, um, the they're actually actually putting they're re-releasing them in theaters. They're going to be uh, on February first. The both movies are going to be um, playing at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Brooklyn. And then on March eighth, they're going to be at the New Art in Los Angeles. And I think there's they're supposed to be like a, a national rollout after that. But um, if you can't catch them in theaters, uh, they're going to be available for purchase um, through the Criterion Collection on April thirtieth of this year. So uh, I would say if you're a fan of martial arts mo- movies of Jackie Chan's early films these are like instant purchases like there's no you know I, I'm I'm shocked and and um and embarrassed that it's taken me this long to <laughs> to get around to seeing these two movies because they're really incredible the second one opens with a recap of like the best stunt moments from the first film, partly as like a plot refresher, but also partly as like a flex, like telling the audience that this one is going to be better. Like, yeah, we're, you know, here's a, here's a highlight reel, uh, get a, get a load of what's coming now. And I'm not quite sure that the second one, um, actually lives up to that standard. It has an incredible action in it as you would expect, but I think the first one is just so it's like really inventive with the action. The second one feels, um, you know just as impressive but maybe a little bit more um situation dependent like the, like the for example the final climax is set in a huge warehouse and it just seems like um it seems like it's it's a little bit more designed if that makes sense like oh here's the part where you know we throw guys through a million barrels that happen to be laying around in here. Here's the part where fireworks go off because, of course, there are fireworks in this abandoned, uh, you know, uh, warehouse. So uh, in terms of, like, the plot, I think I, I would... Recommend Police Story One over Two, but both movies are are really like invaluable in terms of, um, you know, 1980s action classics that are not from America. So I would highly, highly recommend them. I think a couple things I really appreciate about both these movies are that during the fights, Jackie Chan gets hit all the time. Like it, people don't just attack him one at a time, like the the traditional um, martial arts movie cliche. He's like constantly actually getting hit, which is you, you don't see that that often in these types of movies. And also, it's not just him that's pulling off like the incredible moves, like all of the, the henchmen and stuff that he's fighting against are doing flying jump kicks and like really impressive moves too. And and I feel like in more modern, you know, like a, like a Tony Jaa style, uh, martial arts film, it's really like, he's the superstar and everybody else is like clearly, um, you know, a, a level or two below him. But it seems like it's one of those things where it seems like if you were to follow the story of, One of these random henchmen who was actually also really good at martial arts, there might be like a whole separate franchise in there because this person seems almost just as capable as Jackie Chan's character does. So uh, anyway, Police Story, Police Story 2 available. The the Police uh, Story
1: uh, cinematic universe that they missed out on.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are available on uh, April 30th and coming to the theaters, like I said, before that. Um, I also saw Bad Times at the El Royale. I know Chris talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go too long on it. But um, man, I really like Drew Goddard as a filmmaker. I think he is a really, really smart writer-director. I enjoy this movie a great deal. I do think, uh, to echo what Chris said last week, it's a little bit long, but I loved Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Erivo's dynamic. I loved uh, John Hamm in this movie Chris Hemsworth like I I think Chris said last week that you know there's a uh, at least one plot line that he wouldn't mind seeing removed entirely I liked all of the plot lines I just wish the whole thing could have been a little bit tighter because it, it runs it feels like it drags just a little bit but the concept is so great Um, you know it's set in this hotel where it's completely split in half where one side is California one side is in Nevada and there's Uh, I was watching a little bit of behind the scenes stuff and just the production design elements are are really impressive for what they did in terms of lighting and all of that stuff there. So, um, yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend this movie. I think if I would have caught it last year, it might have ended up like maybe squeezing into my top 15 or something. So uh, that is Bad Times at the El Royale. I got it. I think it's available on on. You know uh, VOD and and uh, all that. Now I I got it through the Netflix disc plan. Uh, I also watched Hotel Artemis on a plane, and um, this is the movie that I was catching a lot of flack for, basically being like a ripoff of the John Wick movies. It's set in a uh, a hotel where uh, Jodie Foster plays a nurse who. Um, Tends to the wounds of assassins And and people who are in like a Futuristic crime syndicate basically Like they're members of this specific hotel And they're able to come to her to uh, Recuperate after Ah, uh, particular injuries that they gather. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is in this. The cast is really good. Uh, Jody Foster, Sterling Sterling K. Brown, um, Jeff Goldblum, Brian Tyree Henry. I think I don't like this movie nearly as much as either of the two John Wicks. Um, I don't know if it's a full-on ripoff, but it definitely there are tons of similarities. It feels a little weird in that regard. Um, Drew Pierce, This is his directorial debut. The direction is fine, and and I mean he, you know he's the guy who wrote um, Iron Man three was one of the writers on Iron Man three. Um, so, you know, he has like a, a, certainly a creative streak in him and it seems like he's, he's going just far enough to try to separate this from the John wick stuff that, that I'm not really like rolling my eyes and giving it too much side eye in terms of that angle. But I, just like a lot of this movie feels very written if you know what I'm saying. It It's sort of like characters speak in ways that, uh, that people would never speak in the real world and not in like a super stylized way, like in a Tarantino movie or something. So, um, I found it just to be you know uh, lackluster all the way around. Although I will say Sterling K. Brown is very good, and I want to see him in more leading roles. And Sophia Boutella, who I know primarily as like the uh, metal-legged henchman from the first Kingsman movie. Um, she was also in, like, Star Trek Beyond and stuff. But she, this was, like, the first movie where I was like, oh, wow, she actually, like, could maybe lead a movie that I would be interested in watching. Like, she's she's more than just, like, the the stereotypical female badass, you know, the action star kind of thing. I, I feel like she did a little bit of that in this movie as well, but um I, I thought her acting was actually pretty good in this movie. So uh,
5: let's not forget that Sophia Butella is also Dark Universe's famous The Mummy. So <laughs> yeah, I never saw The Mummy. So I guess. she's
4: going to be the lead of that franchise. <laughs> oh, and
0: she's also on the leads in Climax, if to mention that. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So man, this is a, a Sophia Butella heavy podcast. So she um,
5: mummy in, in Climax, Jacob? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, but she plays somebody who lots of bad things happen to. She walks like an Egyptian during her dances. Oh,
5: and,
0: boy. And okay, right. sorry. Uh, I give up. I'm done. I quit. Uh, no, and then two other movies really quickly. Um, I, I had like a – over the past week and a half, I've had like a an un – an unwitting George Cukor triple feature. Last week I talked about Gaslight, which was really great. And then on the plane, uh, I I recently flew back to Florida. I watched uh, The Philadelphia Story and The Women, um, both of which were directed by George Cukor, and I had no idea that he directed those. But uh, I'll talk about The Women first really quickly. This movie is from 1939. It is a movie – it's the first movie I've ever seen – ever, that does not have any male characters in it at all. It stars Norma Shearer, Joan Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell. And it's based on a play. And the entire thing is just about, like, these, uh, these sort of, like, bickering high society women and not a single male actor appears in the entire movie which for 1939 and also it was written by two women I think um yeah Anita Luce and Jane murfin so for 1939 that's like a, a jaw-dropping achievement really like you know I, I feel like I haven't seen that ever lot not even in a modern context so uh, that's very impressive um I have I, seen
4: I just want to say you note know, that I, I think that. That the only time I've ever seen that happen with there's an all-female cast with no man in sight is um Wheat Femme, the french film Eight Women, which is a dark comedy musical, and uh, is it's about a man in a way. It's like about the murder of a man and but it's only only women are on screen the entire time.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And this movie also is sort of about men. It's it's these women talking about the men in their lives and and one of them is cheating is like the mistress of one of their husbands. And it's it's all very like um, <laughs> like incestual in that way, not like literally incest. But uh, it's um, I mean, I, I don't know if it really holds up under like a, uh, a modern lens like, you know, th- there's a lot of like, uh, for example, the husband is cheating, but he is basically like his behavior is justified by these women because this movie came out in 1939 and it was just like more societally acceptable for men to cheat on their wives back then. It was just like a given, I guess. Um, So, you know, if you're watching it through a 2019 lens and trying to apply like today's standards to it, I think it's going to feel a little bit lacking in that regard. But in terms of it being a 1939 movie that that is like a powerhouse for these women to to you know star in this movie and and deliver you know inc- incredible performances um it was yeah very enjoyable i don't know if i actually i'll just put it this way i would recommend watching the philadelphia story over the women uh even though there are men in this movie uh, it stars katherine hepburn carrie grant and james stewart and there's terrific performances by all three of them jimmy stewart gets drunk in this movie or his character does for a, a decent stretch of the film and i've never i don't think i've seen uh outside of like it's a wonderful life um jimmy stewart play like a drunkard at any point and this he, he is like very convincing and uh it's super super entertaining um, Hepburn is great, Cary Grant is great Like the this is a movie about um, a socialite whose wedding plans are complicated by the simultaneous arrival of her ex-husband and a tabloid magazine journalist, that's the description from Wikipedia, but um, man it's just a solid, solid writing, there's tons of like, uh, you know, back and forth zingers and stuff like that um, this is like, a, it came out in 1940 and it just feels like a, a really classic um, rom-com that is that like transcends the genre, the the tropes that appeared later in the genre that anything, you know, if, you, if you're talking about romantic comedies and you sort of roll your eyes at the way that they uh, incorporate certain elements or, or p- always play out very predictably um and you're talking about the movies that came out in the 80s and 90s. I would still recommend going back and watching this one because it came out way before then. And it it is predictable in a way, but it's also super, super entertaining. And the script is just so, so solid. So uh, that's the Philadelphia story that came out in 1940.
1: You know, it's it's very interesting uh, about, about the women's all-female cast, because when you said that, that never occurred to me that I had probably never seen a movie that has you know an, an all-female cast. And I was trying to think about it.
0: And I can think of. A dozen all male casts, but I oh can't yeah, think that of... seems
3: way more. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, and
0: maybe there's something that I've seen where it only has you know like one or two cast members. It's like a really small scale indie movie that is only about you know a, a woman and her best friend or something like that that I can't think of off the top of my head. The, but the uh, this has a I huge can... sprawling cast, so it's really impressive in that way.
1: Yeah, the closest thing I can come up with is like the Descent, the 2005 horror movie that had like. I think I had one guy in it, but it was mostly women. I don't know. That's really crazy. And I'm surprised that there not are... not that we should be arguing for all of one sex cast out there, but, but uh, I don't know. Something I just never thought of. um Oh, did, did you mean to skip over the Escape at oh. Danamora?
0: Yeah, I I watched the first episode of Escape at Danamora, which uh, Peter's talked about a bunch, and I just haven't, I don't have much to say about it because I've only seen the first episode, but uh, the music in that show already seems like really, <laughs> I mean, like I think Dave Chen, who hosts the Slash Filmcast, was talking about how the, the music budget must have been completely out of control, um, and <laughs> I'm not just sort of yeah I'm interested to to dive into it a little bit further, but um, I was very impressed with the the songs that they were able to get and how expensive that must have been, and they also used a really deep cut song. Called from the beginning from Emerson, Lake and Palmer that my dad uh, listened to all the time. And I listened to growing up and I've never heard it used in any piece of media ever. So I was like completely taken aback that they used this super deep cut song. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's Escape at Denimore, That's on Showtime right now.
1: Yeah. One of the lead characters blasts like a pop station with pop songs in uh, one of the work areas. So you get a lot of that kind of stuff, which is great. Um, Chris, aside from the two fire documentaries... What have you been watching?
2: Uh, I watched a film. It's on VOD this weekend, and it's in a few theaters. It's called *The Standoff at Sparrow Creek*, and it is very good. It's a uh, low-budget indie film, and it shows you exactly like how how to do so much with so little. It's 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 almost entirely set in one location. It, it followed the follows this uh, militia. They're they're a right-wing militia, and they find out there was a, a, a shooting at a at a cop's funeral, and one of their guns in in their you know armory is missing. So they think one of them did the shooting, and you know obviously that's going to draw heat on them. So they're basically trying to figure out which one of them you know did the deed. It's sort of like Reservoir Dogs, where you know there's one person who's a traitor and all that stuff, but it's not really like that at all and uh this was incredible it's inc- it's so tense and so well made and uh you know i can't imagine the budget on this was high at all but it looks phenomenal like it, it makes this one location just so cinematic with just you by using you know shadows and uh, certain angles and I, I was really impressed with it like this is probably better than 85 percent of you know big budget movies that will come out this year where can people watch this uh it's available on vod or no, so you can probably rent it on vod or like on itunes or whatever
3: very cool I just want to pipe in and say i saw this in pasting fest last year and we talked about it uh last year during the during the, another episode of the show and i'll second chris this movie is fantastic and while it may not be a one-to-one uh reservoir dogs comparison in my write-up of the movie i did compare it to the energy I felt watching that movie was comparable to when I first watched Reservoir Dogs. It's that kind of like – it's that kind of indie. And the director, whose name I'm pulling up right now, Henry Dunham, if this is his first feature, then holy shit, his second movie is going to be like I, – I can't wait. He's clearly someone to keep an eye on. Very cool. Uh,
1: let's move on to HT. HT. You finally saw If Beale Street Could Talk.
4: I finally saw If Street Could Talk long after I finalized my top 10 of 2018, which I hugely am just regret because um, If Beal Street Could Talk would have totally made my top 10. Um, this is such a lush lyrical film by Barry Jenkins, and I was just awash in all of like the colors and the vibrancy of this film, um, I absolutely adored it. I haven't read the James Baldwin book upon which is this which this is based, but I hear that the book uh, focuses more on the the crime aspects and the sort of the corrupt the corrupt, um, uh criminal institutions uh, through which the um, main character uh, I forget Bonnie. his name. Yes funny gets, uh, imprisoned, uh, falsely imprisoned. And, um, I, I'm really glad that, um, Barry Jenkins decided to go a sort of different route. He decided to focus more on the characters and the romance. And I think that that really is where like, if Bealtry could talk, like has its strength because it's such a sublime piece in the way that it just, focuses on the faces of all the characters in here and and jenkins again brings out the best in his cast um everything is just so beautiful and the expressions are just so um rich that i love watching every frame of this film
1: yeah i i wish you could have saw this before the top tens I know, but we, we we like a lot of sites will publish their top tens a lot of critics in like the first couple weeks of uh of December. We actually are in the later mix of it. We published it in the first week or so of January. Is that correct, Jacob?
3: Uh yeah, we, we try to give ourselves a little bit more time so yeah. we can all try to catch up.
1: So we, we try to give ourselves enough time, but it's all every year there ends up being stuff that, you know, we just can't catch uh
4: yeah when i actually saw when i saw shoplifters i was torn between seeing shoplifters or if Beale street could talk yeah. and shoplifters ended up going to my the number one spot in my list so i'm very happy i saw that but i was upset that i wasn't able to see both uh, before my list was finalized
1: cool uh what else have you been watching this week
4: so this was inspired by chris's most recent now stream this column uh i, I watched the commuter which yeah <laughs> is, like, the most dad movie ever. I say that in that um, when I was watching this movie, I could just imagine all dads watching this and being like, yeah, this is a great movie. <laughs> um, this is a Liam Neeson film uh, that in which he stars as a commuter who uh, one day, as he's going on a train back from work after he's been fired, uh, is approached by a woman played by Vera Famiga who tells him that he has... Um, a choice to, to find one person who doesn't belong on the train and he can get, I think, $10,000 out of it. And uh, this ends up being a very tense thriller in which he is um, being watched and trying to figure out who is calling these shots and pulling these strings and uh, lives are on the lines. And Liam Neeson, of course, the, is an ex-cop who somehow is is trained in like SWAT-style fight training and um it's it's just so fun and, and um I and Jean Colette Seurat directs this in a way that's like way more stylish than it should be like at the beginning there's a montage of just like these mundane suburban moments and it's there's just so many angles and intense close-ups and I'm like why does this feel so tense and they're just going through a montage of their everyday lives but um it's fun it's kind of like it feels kind of like a, a B movie. Um, with a, an immense budget. And I really enjoyed it for that.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is the type of movie that's going to gain like some steam on TNT with the dads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, solid TNT Definitely. movie. Uh, what else have you been watching?
4: So I've been catching up on uh, two TV shows that I've really enjoyed but haven't been able to uh, watch uh, frequently until now. Uh, the first was... I'm going to talk about the chilling adventures of Sabrina. This is the Netflix series starring Kyrnan Shipka as the titular Sabrina Spellman in the sort of revamped horror gothic take on this iconic character. I had watched a few episodes before, and I'd really enjoyed it, but just didn't have the time to finish it. So I caught up on season one just in time for season two to come, I think, in April. Um, But I remember watching this, and uh, I was really anticipating it because it was from the same producers as Riverdale, and uh, I liked the sitcom when I was growing up. And I was kind of eager to see this sort of gothic take. I anticipated it to be something akin to, like, Riverdale meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the first few episodes kind of confirmed that thought. But then it got very dark and very violent towards the end um there's a lot of throat slitting and throat slitting is like the one thing that I can't stand watching I don't know why it's a big fear of mine when I was young I used to fear that like arrows would come and like slice my throat open I don't know why I have that fear but um I was not fond of that but otherwise it's really I I quite enjoyed the first season and um It's, it's not quite as overwritten as Riverdale. It's definitely better written than Riverdale. Um, it doesn't have the camp factor that Buffy has either. It has, it's kind of its own genre. Um, so I, I liked it though. It was, um, I'm not sure if I would call it campy, but it definitely has a sort of a heightened, uh, tone to it, which I enjoyed. Um, and then I also have been I've caught caught up on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is the CW series uh, co-created and starring Rachel Bloom. So this is a series that I've been kind to kind of um, waving the flag for because it's a lot of people don't give it a fair shot because of its title, and and you know I I understand if people are put off by that. I was initially put off by it, but Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is this really clever, really. Um, brilliantly written musical series that uh, both subverts the tropes of the romantic comedy while expertly executing all of those, um, all of its sort of archetypes in a way that is both sincere and also satirical. It it juggles, it walks that line really well. And um, this is its final and fourth season fourth and final season of the series. It's wrapping up all the storylines and I really love how this series has become not just like a send-up of the romantic comedy, but a really nuanced depiction of mental illness, especially in the way that the fourth season has kind of seen uh, Rachel Bloom's character Rebecca um, come to terms with her mental illness and deal with it in a really healthy and um, sensitive way. And I'm really enjoying that. Musical numbers are great, of course, as always. I just, when I think that they are out of musical genres or types to parody, they keep surprising me like this, this past week, I think, or two weeks ago, they did a brilliant, I haven't, I've never seen cats, but they did a brilliant, um, cats parody, uh, which also doubled as a, an episode about vaginal health. Cause get (laughs) it like cats pussy. Ah. anyways, Crazy ex Girlfriend is a great show. If you haven't given it a chance yet, I highly encourage you to. It's a funny, uh kind of has a lot of cringe humor, especially in the first well, actually all throughout, but in the first seasons especially. But um, if you can like stomach some like secondhand embarrassment, I highly recommend it.
1: I think you've sold me on both of these TV shows. I I did watch the first episode of Sabrina, and I was uh quite taken with it, but like I don't know if it's just a thing with me and streaming shows, but it's so easy if it's, like, the next episode isn't, like, in the list of on your DVR. It's so easy to, like, get distracted by all those tiles on Netflix. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. so easy if you're not binging it to, you know, just it to fall off. So I, I'm going to try to check both of these out.
4: Uh, the first three seasons of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are on Netflix as well. Cool.
1: Um, let's move on to what we've been eating, uh, in the last couple months, I've been talking about my dieting, which is something I I actually, I was hesitant to talk about on this podcast and in public because, uh, I feel like that can be annoying, but I've gotten a lot of great responses from slash film listeners and readers and, uh, my followers are on, on Twitter. We've actually been getting messages from people who listen to this podcast that have, uh, Decided to uh, use myself and Jacob as inspiration to go on the keto diet, um, and have you know been sharing their successes and how much weight they've been been losing. So it, it's uh, really great to be hearing that, and that makes me very happy. Um, this past week, I ordered new jeans that were six inches smaller than the jeans I had been wearing uh, for the last couple of years, and uh, they fit. So uh, that is a, a success. And, um, uh, when I went and saw my new doctor at forward, which I talked about in a previous episode. Uh, one of his goals for me was to get off my heartburn medication. I take a heartburn. I take two pills of Prilosec every day. That's twice the recommended dosage, but I had been prescribed that a couple, a few years ago from a doctor. And basically if I don't take those pills, my life is miserable. My, you know, my throat is eaten up by acid and, um, uh, you know, last week he, uh, told me that he thinks with the, uh, as much weight loss as I've had, which at this point is nearing 40 pounds. Um, uh, it, uh, he thought that I could go down to one pill a day. I was skeptical. I went down to one pill a day and I am not, uh, not having any heartburn, which is also kind of amazing because. Uh, you know, one of the things that causes heartburn is fatty foods, which I'm eating, eating a lot of on this diet. So uh, those are my two, uh, you know, success stories of the week that I, I'm, I'm very happy about. And uh, to, and and again, I, I I you know, I'm not saying everybody you have to take, you have to go on the keto diet to lose weight. There's many ways to lose weight. Uh, I I'm happy that people are listening and getting inspiration from this. And I'll continue to share some of uh, the things I'm finding, which are low sugar. Uh, The one thing I wanted to kind of recommend this week is there's this company called Chalk Zero, which has these like squares that are almost like giardelli chocolate squares. And uh, the thing I discovered this week from them is peppermint bark, which I think it's sold out on their website, but you can get notified for when it comes back in. And I'm a big fan of peppermint bark and one of the big Uh, one of the big disappointments of being on a diet this holiday season was not being able to eat peppermint bark and this stuff tastes like real peppermint bark it doesn't taste like you know it doesn't taste close to peppermint bark it's not like halo ice cream to real ice cream this like tastes like real peppermint bark so i'll leave the links to those in the show notes uh jacob how how has your diet been
3: going uh, my diet's going really well so far. Keto is one of the few diets where I don't feel miserable every single day. I mean, there are, there are tough moments and tough, you know, tough stretches, but normally when I've done I've in the past, has been like agony. Like the entire time, I feel like I'm miserable and upset and angry at the world, but I feel, you know, very stable, calm, and comfortable on this diet. I mean, if this is like the new normal for me, which it may have to be, you know, once I reach my goal weight, I'm not going to suddenly reverse. So I'm going to have to, you know, stick with this, you know, for, for most of my life. I can do this, and I, I feel like I can, I can stick to this change for the foreseeable future. Uh, I've been tracking my uh, actual physical progress on my Instagram page. Uh, check up Samuel Hall. You know, so if you want to see photographs, uh, and if you want to see um, some before and after stuff, you know, a, a little a little over two weeks into this, there's already been some you know dec- some, some some nice some minor but decent results. You can go check out those photos. Uh, but meantime, I'll. You also say minor,
1: but I'm, I'm seeing this photo of a shirt that clearly didn't fit you side by side with you wearing the same shirt, and it, it seems to fit uh, quite nicely.
3: It, it's still a little snug. I think maybe next week I, I, I may be close to being on the wearer in public, but you know, fingers crossed. Um, yeah, I'll second Peter's uh, snack recommendations. Slim Fast makes a keto peanut butter cup that is very good. Like I said, it wouldn't be delicious if you're eating it like, next to Reese's, like in real life. But on a diet, when you really want a peanut butter cup, it's really good. And also a Swerve Cake Mix. Um, I'm not sure where you can find this regularly. We buy it at a store called Central Market here in Austin. I would definitely check online if you can't find it in a grocery store near you. But it's a um, cake mix where each cupcake you make with it is only three carbs, or three net carbs. And it tastes enough like a real cupcake for it to... Uh, really scratch that itch. So, that's Swerve cake mix and Slim Fast peanut butter cups, SlimFast keto peanut butter cups are very good and are keep me um are keep me from like you know when running a snack. I actually have a actually have a snack I can go have as opposed to you know having to shut down entirely, which is extremely helpful. Yeah,
1: I think those SlimFast keto peanut butter cups are actually uh, under the name Fat Bomb, which is the term that people using keto. They're not really actually fat bombs. And that might even prevent people from – you just want a low-sugar snack from trying them. But uh, yeah. they're very good.
3: Yeah, Fat Bomb, from, from what I uh, my wife is all the research. I do what she says when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, people who are very, very serious ketoers, like more extreme than Peter and I even are, they, they try to eat a very large amount of fat, like much, much, much more fat um, and, you know, to do – It's part of the process, the chemical ketosis process, and I can't explain it to you, but so fat bombs are kind of snacks, you know, they fill you full of fat, but when you're on keto, the fat doesn't really matter as long as you're keeping the carbs and sugar down.
1: Yeah, but I think Slim Jacks is just trying to uh, steal that term, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Brad, on the opposite opposite side of things, what have you been eating this week?
5: Uh, Not anything super exciting, but I did get my hands on a couple things that when I was at the store uh, earlier this week running some errands. Um, I've got my hands on the new Oreo The Most Stuff, which is regular Oreo cookies that have even more uh, cream filling than the Double Stuff Oreos. Uh, They're very thick. There's like only eight of them per row in the smaller Oreo packages.
1: Brad, I know I share your obsession with Oreos and different seasonal Oreos. This Mm -hmm. is honestly one of the only things right now – that I want that could convince me to go off my diet. So tell me, like, <laughs> is it is it as amazing as I picture it to be? They
5: they are good. I will say that they are enjoyable, um, but I do feel like there's a little too much cream filling. Like, I feel like there's a heavy medium maybe between double stuff and this, where it would probably be like perfect. But um, I I still enjoy I still like them. Like, I mean, it's really it's just like. The you know the the mix of the cream with the classic Oreo cookie is is always good. Um, and so like dipping them in milk is good. We were I was talking actually to my girlfriend about this, and they'd probably be good if you like use them to make like your own homemade McFlurries. Uh, since there's a lot more frosting to work with and mixing it in with the ice cream and the cookie. Um, but yeah, they're 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 pretty tasty. They're not um, you know, not mind blowing because they're not much different than a regular Oreo, but they're
1: they're good. Cool. What else have you been eating or consuming?
5: And so, uh, one of the things, obviously, that I uh, go out of my way to find are different flavors of Mountain Dew. Really, any soft drink. Um, but there's some new uh, flavors for Mountain Dew Amp, which is basically Mountain Dew's like energy um, drink kind of brand. And they've taken some as uh, new flavors that are seem slightly different from their Game Fuel variants of Mountain Dew, which they release whenever there's like a new big video game and they're doing cross promotion for. And so they have uh, four new flavors of mountain dew amp that's under the game fuel moniker now. Uh, they have cherry burst, berry blast, the original mountain dew flavor, and tropical strike. And I'm not really a a, a berry kind of flavor kind of person, especially when it comes to like a blue raspberry or stuff like that, so I didn't get that one. But I did get the cherry burst and the tropical strike, um, and both are pretty uh, tasty they They taste um, pretty similar to the regular mountain dew. Game Fuel flavor variants, um, but just with slight variation. I think it's just because of whatever other ingredients are in their their energy drink style. Um, the only v- downside, I guess, is like they bec- they come in bigger cans, so it's it's a lot of Mountain Dew to drink. You know, I'm I'm really only uh, down to drink like one can of Mountain Dew and just a regular size in a, a single sitting, and so it's it's a little too much. Um, but they, they do taste pretty good, and so if you're if you're a Mountain Dew fan,
1: you should take it not these are made for people who sit in front of their computers playing Warcraft for 20 hours in a row.
5: I mean, that's very true. So they will probably enjoy them since they don't have to get up as, as many times. I will say, though, these have a really – I don't know if this is a normal Mountain Dew amp thing um, since I have never had a, a regular one before. But they have these weird uh, can tops where it's like this black plastic tab that you pull, pull flip up and pull back. So that it slides it back over the mouthpiece rather than popping it open. I was I was really confused by it at first, and I don't really understand what the point is of it. But I don't I, I guess sometimes gaming gets really intense, and you don't want to spill your drink when you get mad at a fifteen year old for beating you. I don't I don't know.
1: <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, you you're the only one that's been playing things this week. So what have you been playing?
3: Even though I'm not really playing things as much as I'm preparing to play. Uh, once again on my, my Instagram page, I'm tracking my progress as I learn how to paint miniatures. I finished my first batch of Warhammer forty k figures. And I've been painting some metal Reaper figures, which are these sort of five to seven dollar uh, like fantasy figures that like you use for d and d games. And I'm really enjoying it. I mean, like getting into the hobby of painting and building models and miniatures is you know' there's a definitely a amount of money I spent up front to buy all the supplies, buy all the basic paints. but, I'm really enjoying it and so far. I'm, I'm I'm pleased with how things look. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to be the kind of guy who can be like a master miniature painter, but you know, my stuff looks very presentable on a table, so I'm very happy with it.
1: Jacob, I I was looking at these photos and I I was in disbelief that this is your first time painting because these look very very good.
3: Well, thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. It, it's very fun, and it's, I think it's a case where like I thought I'd maybe learn. And just be really crappy at first. But, you know, I just took my time, made a lot of mistakes, fixed those mistakes. And I feel like this is a hobby that a lot of people maybe think is harder than it is. And uh, and I've, I'm have i not going to say it's easy, but it requires a lot of concentration and, like, you know, effort to make it look good. But um, I'm pleasantly surprised by how accessible it is once you're in there.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. That does it for today's Slash home Daily In the doc, you can find links to Josh's article running down the differences between fire and fire fraud. Uh, Which one's better? Which one should you watch? Which one's less ethically compromised? Uh, There's also a link to HT's article on uh, the Battle Angel Passport to Iron City Immersive Experience. And you can find more of all of our work on social.com. Uh, linked in the show notes. This podcast, Slash Home Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at dot And uh, if you want life advice from Chris, you can also send it there as well. Please go to our iTunes page, write us a couple sentences, you know, hit that five stars, Just tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you tomorrow.
3: Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob? <laughs> I, I have opened up the Gargantuan Book of Insults, Offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian to a random page. And it is the, the, the Liars section.
1: Who is the liar so, today?
3: Oh, I think you're all liars because the way a section is set up is that it has the lie written out. Then in parentheses, it tells you why, who the person is making the lie. So I'm going to cross-reference it with all of you to tell the truth about all of you. Like for example, Ben. Ben says, I have a real big job, but he actually washes elephants at the zoo.
4: I <laughs> just I feel like that's a great thing though. I'd like to watch elephants at the zoo.
3: It's definitely a big job. Well, H T, your brother occupied the chair of applied electricity in a famous public institution <laughs> because he went to your electric chair and sing you sing. Oh
4: my god.
3: Wow. Well, Chris, you got his fingers burned on Wall Street because he was picking up a lit cigar from the sidewalk. <laughs> oh, what a rascal. Oh,
5: oh,
3: oh, Brad, I heard you hit the top in television because you fixed aerials. Uh, I do love helping people with their TV signals. And that, wait, wait, and that, wait, 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 I'm confused. Well, explain that one to me. He hit the top in television because he's, he's up high. Fixing TV aerials. Oh, okay. You get the top. Yeah, I get it. And, well, well, Peter, I hear you dine with the brass, because no one would trust you with the silver. Oh, boy. <laughs> man, Jacob, your delivery is just chef's kiss on these. I'm just speaking the great truths about all of us here.
5: I want Jacob to do a, a full old-timey podcast where he just, like,
3: <laughs> flings these insults. See, well, as a child, I was a musical prodigy. I played on the linoleum. Oh, boy. I, I
1: think I think this um, this publisher, this book publisher, should hire Jacob to read the audiobook version of this book.
5: Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder if anyone good. has bought this
3: book because of Jacob reading it on here. <laughs> I sure hope so. Because no woman ever walks back when she goes for a ride with me because I drive a hearse. <laughs> Wait, did you kill somebody? <laughs>